When it was released in 2018, Educated by Tara Westover was called one of the 10 best books of the year by basically everyone, including President Barack Obama and Bill Gates. It's the exceptionally heartbreaking story of a young girl raised by her fundamentalist survivalist parents who eventually went on to leave her family and earn a PhD from Cambridge University despite having no formal education before she was 17. Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I'm talking to Skye Pratt Epperson, who writes about family, history, religion, and fitness. She's working on a memoir about her childhood in Eswatini, Africa, and the varying expectations of the different faiths represented there. Sky joined me today to talk about Educated, a memoir that has some remarkable similarities to her own life. I know you will agree that it is fascinating to hear someone with real insight into the school-free childhood tell me why Educated is the best book ever. Hi, Sky. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Thank you, Julie. So happy to be here. I know that you have a really unique background. Will you share with my listeners about your upbringing and where you were raised and the travels that you've had in your life? So I was born in Alaska in the early 80s. My dad is from New Zealand. My mom is from New Mexico. They sort of both wandered into Alaska at the same time and very quickly got married, had me and my brothers in Alaska. And then when I was a kid, we moved to what used to be Swaziland. It's now called Eswatini. So we moved to very rural Eswatini, a place called Mkuzweni. And we lived on a uh, hospital compound where my parents were missionaries working for a Swedish mission uh, group. I lived there until we moved back to Alaska when I was 14. We were there for about two years before we moved back to Eswatini, this time to the capital city, which is where my parents still are and where we all finished out our um, our teen years in our high school, my siblings and I. And then uh, I moved to the States. I moved to New Mexico for college after finishing high school in Eswatini. And here I am. Those are all really big jumps. How do you cope with culture shock? Well, I think it's so baked in at this point. I think for me, the transition was trickier, um, trying to just learn how to be in one place with one culture um, and think about doing that for the long term. That was much harder for me than dealing with culture shock. Because even when we were a little bit more static, when we were in particular places, and especially Eswatini, there was tons of cultural fluctuation. Just a lot of different cultures, different countries, different points of view for my whole life. And that really narrowed when I moved to the States. And then I had to kind of get comfortable with that. What language did you speak when you lived there? Siswati. It's closely related to Zulu. Okay. On paper, although I, 
I and my my friends have and I have all shared stories of speaking Saswati or trying to speak Saswati in the parts of South Africa where they speak Zulu and being terribly misunderstood and making fools of ourselves. So, so what did you ever read in Saswati? In school, mm-hmm. um, I don't recall there being a lot of books in Saswati. Um, there were Bibles, Saswati Bibles, that was common. Um, and then not even whole books in school. It was just t- kind of um, s- chunks of text. And that was only specifically in Siswati class because school was conducted in English, whether or not people oh. spoke it. Most of my classmates did not speak English and were still educated in English with the exception of Siswati lesson. So what was your personal reading life like? I had a lot of access to books, but I didn't have any control over what the titles were, if that makes sense. So I always had books, but I had to read whatever showed up and I was fine with that. So we definitely could not afford to buy books in any sort of regular way. My granny in New Zealand, my whole childhood sent books wherever we lived. She um, would mail books to us. And New Zealand, for whatever reason, their children's book game is on point. New Zealand writers just make beautiful children's books. That's lovely. I've never heard that before. And yeah. I wonder what I wonder what fosters that if it's a more artistically creative community in New Zealand or if there's just a special reverence for children and children's books. It would be so interesting to find out what makes it such a vibrant culture. Yeah, I totally agree. And I like I'd love to know and I don't th- feel like I have any great theories on what that Mm. is. I can only speak to Kiwi culture as it pertains to my family. Mm -hmm. And I will say that there is a real, um, real reverence for childhood, maybe even more so childhood, the institution than childhood, the child, if that makes sense. I wouldn't say that there's very much sort of like magical thinking or mystical thinking or anything outside of extremely practical brains in adulthood. So I wonder if there's kind of a nostalgia for Mm. being able to just kind of follow your imagination when you were a kid, because you, there doesn't seem to be a ton of permission to do that in adulthood in my family, but my family is farmer stock. So I don't know. So what about now? What's your reading life like now? So I feel like there's my before child and after child. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that. Yes. Before parenthood, I always had three books going all the time. Um, I always had a nonfiction, always had a fiction and then a wild card. Um, And that's just kind of how I ruled. And for whatever reason, that worked really well with my brain, Um, being able to, to switch between the three. And always paper. I was kind of a total purist. I didn't want to do Kindle, didn't want to do audiobook. I was just really addicted to the physical interaction with the book. Um, and then my kid was born, and I remember nursing my baby and like trying to read and being like, oh, this is not going to work. <laughs> now, what do I do? My husband is techie. And he'd been trying for years to get me to read a Kindle. And I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. So he got me a Kindle and that really kind of helped because you can do it with one hand and you don't, if you drop it, you don't lose your spot. And, 
And um, so that helped a lot. And my reading, of course, slowed down big time. And then once my kid became mobile, it suddenly sort of occurred to me. Like, I feel like I had this epiphany. I was like, oh, they make audiobooks. I've always loved, always loved podcasts and been really a very voracious po- podcast listener. I don't know what was wrong with me. Like, why it did not occur to me that listening to a book could be equally rewarding. Um, I think part of that might be academic when, I mean, I did a lot of lit crit in school and grad school. And I think part partly it didn't occur to me that you can properly read if you're not like deep in marginalia. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I've learned since having a child, you can read without writing stuff down while you do it. It's possible. It's incredible. <laughs> I know. But uh, that, yeah, that took me a minute. So now in the last three years, my kid is three, um, I have been listening to audiobooks, and you can do that while you're cooking dinner or driving. Or my big thing now is I really like to run and hike. Um, and I, I feel like those require like those, those things, reading and running require the same kind of time where you're by yourself and no one's bothering you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I couldn't listen to books before I did try occasionally and I couldn't do it, but I think I was still very much in conversation mode with a book. Okay. Um, so it was challenging for me to listen to something while I was doing something else because my brain was, was kind of going with the response. Like, what was I going to write about this? Or was I going to think about this? Or what would I say to the author or to the editor or to a book club or whatever the case may be? And I finally feel like I've kind of reached the age and the life circumstance where when necessary, I can turn that sucker off. And yeah, it's a real game changer. But I do think if I were trying to listen to a book with that brain, I would not also be able to go for a run. I think you've exactly hit on it. It just depends on how much in conversation you want to be with your book. You don't, I don't quite get as much when I'm listening on audio. Totally. Yes. It's a completely different experience. 99% of the books that I have consumed in the last three years have been audiobooks. I still um, kind of catch myself. I'll be talking to a friend or something and say, I just read a book. Well, I just listened to a book. It isn't quite the same. I feel like I can do a deep, deep read of a book when I'm holding it. I cannot do a deep, deep read when I'm listening to it. Do you remember how you found this book that we're talking about today, Educated by Tara Westover? Yeah. So this was recommended by a friend a few years, like pretty close to when it came out. Um and then I just kind of added it to the mental pile. And I don't know about your mental pile, but mine is <laughs> really, really big. I'm drafting a memoir right now. And I was talking about some of the details of it with another writer. And uh, she sort of stopped me mid-sentence. And she said, "You please tell me you've read Educated. And I had not. She said, you have to. You really have to. There are just a lot of parallels between mm. what you're writing about and her book and so um listened to it right after that and she was right there are a lot of parallels why don't you tell our listeners who maybe haven't read this book what it is about sure 
So it is written by Tara Westover, um, who is the seventh child of um, a kind of fundamentalist, I would say yes and no fundamentalist Mormon couple. They're preppers. They are extremely um, uh, skeptical of anything having to do with government or um, any kind of institution, even including the Mormon church, um, want nothing to do with education or medicine or um, will not register their vehicles with the DMV. So that kind of thing. And all of all of that concern seems to boil down to their concern, to the worries about um, that post-apocalyptic uh, life that they are inevitably going to find themselves in. So, um, so they're what I would consider to be paranoia is very driven by their religion. And they don't want to send their children to school. Tara is the youngest of her siblings. So everything seems normal and hunky-dory to her. And she doesn't really have um, any other frame of reference. She's a, pretty much a teenager by the time she realizes she would like to be educated. She um, was taught to read. She reads everything she can get her hands on. She's brilliant, which might be hereditary. I, I feel like there's definitely a lot of intelligence in her parents. It's just sort of misdirected and there's a lot of mental illness there. And she opts to go to college, much to the dismay of her parents. And that is kind of the beginning of the end of their relationship. And the, the book kind of boils down to her choosing um, education over her family because she must. She's given the ultimatum. By the end of the book, she is estranged from the bulk of her family. And um, from what I've read, that is still the case that remains the case today. So tell me, why is this, why did this book hit so hard for you? Well, so the parallels were interesting to me. I've never met somebody else who had kind of a comparable relationship with education to me. I was not really able to go to school much until I was 14. So my mom kind of homeschooled us. She tried. She also was working and she was raising several children. There were four of us when we lived at Mkuzweni, um, five of us later. So she, she had all these kids and a job and not very much resource and a lot of stress. My mom was very anxious raising her kids in Mkuzweni, right next to a hospital during an HIV epidemic. Um, and Eswatini has had the highest HIV rates in the world for my whole life. Um, and snakes, we found venomous snakes every day in our yard, around our house, uh, everywhere. So there was just a lot of things that made my mom very nervous because of that. She, I don't think had the, the focus to kind of put anything together that kind of resembled a real curriculum. So we didn't have formal education at all, which worked great for my brothers. My brothers were delighted by this. I... <laughs> want 
I had to go to school. I was really interested in school and I'd read about um, kids in my, in the books that I was reading, kids being in school and learning things about science. I wanted a school experience. So eventually my parents allowed my brother and I to go to MCO's waiting primary school, which was um, the school close to where our, our hospital compound was. So my brother um, and I would go to that school. And as I mentioned earlier, the curriculum is all managed in English, but very, very few rural Swazi children at that time spoke English. Like, why would they? Um, so it was kind of a, an interesting experience for us. We were the only white kids who had ever gone to that school and still have ever gone to that school. We were the only kids who had ever gone there who spoke English as a first language. We used the nat national Swazi curriculum, but by necessity, I mean, it had had to go more slowly than than we would have liked it to because it's being taught to kids who don't speak the language. Mm, sure. So he got bored very, very quickly and bailed. And then I, I'm not sure why, but my teacher was never there. I don't know where she was. Um, so the days that she was not there, the headmaster would come in and say, okay, guys, you don't have a teacher today. Try not to make noise. And um, I think after a year, I was just bored to tears. I was just so bored. So I was still reading all the time, but I was doing it at school and we would get I mean, we'd obviously, we're a bunch of like 11 and 12 year olds. So we'd, of course, at some point start making noise and then yeah. we'd get in big trouble. And I just remember sort of feeling over it. So, so I left Mkuzuni Primary School and I had like my first little baby existential crisis. Where I was like, wait, I thought I would really like school. I did not. What's going on here? <laughs> and then, um, then we moved back to Alaska went to a private Christian high school. And that was my first, like, I would say my first real experience with what I thought school would be, where there's like a class schedule and teachers and um, everyone spoke the same language, literally and figuratively. I had, I, I had three classes in that year that really stood out to me and stand out to me still. Um, one of them was physical science where I had this spectacular teacher and I had no experience with science really besides what my parents could kind of cobble together and really very little experience with math and I, all of my classmates were had a pretty good foundation in both and this wonderful patient teacher would stay through his lunch to try to teach me I don't know 10 years of math and science so our time in Alaska was interesting because we, my parents owned a house in Alaska, but it had renters in it when we moved back to Alaska. So we were moving, we stayed in somebody's, we stayed in like a church apartment and then we stayed in somebody's house for a little while. And then we stayed in somebody's basement for a little while. And then I went to somebody's house. My brother went to somebody's house. I don't know where my parents and my other brothers went. And then we all, like there were just, it was chaos for months. Like I really did not know where my parents were or a couple of my siblings were for months. I would see them at church on Sunday 
and because whoever I was staying with would take me to church. And I remember feeling like, okay with that. That was fine. Like mm. it didn't really bother me. And I, I, it didn't occur to me until my physical science teacher at lunch one day, he was a very stoic, stern guy and um, would never lose his temper with all these little asshole, like 14 year olds. And the only time I saw him borderline mad was I, I was frustrated about my homework. It's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just can't get it. And he was like, oh, of course you can't get it. Your life is chaos. Of course you can't learn. And I remember that was the first time in my life where I was like, oh, maybe my childhood isn't traditional. <laughs> that was kind of like the first time that that occurred to me. So I had that class, which was interesting to me at the time because it was everything that I wanted. I wanted in, I wanted to know that I wanted to be able to kind of, to participate in that world and understand it. Um, and I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I didn't have what it took to kind of break into that. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side, I had these two other classes. I had math, same thing. I was excited to take math. I was nervous. Like I felt very intimidated, but I was excited about it. But at this private Christian school, there wasn't like a governing body who they had to answer to for like the, the, the qualifications for teachers. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have a math teacher. We had the basketball coach who didn't know anything about math. And he would just kind of stand at the front and look really puzzled and read the textbook to us. <laughs> and I remember there were maybe three students who knew what was happening and they'd sit at the front and they'd try, kind of talk them through it a little bit. And then the other class that I really remember was Christian living, where you, like we read the Bible and talked about how to be a Christian and what hell was like and what heaven was like and how to get to whichever one you wanted to go to. And that, yeah. So I, I finished uh, at some point in that year, I remember feeling real combinations of like complete disillusionment and complete excitement and being like, somehow I got to figure out how to do this school thing in such a way that I get more of the stuff I like, way less of some of this other stuff, and then, then we'll be groovy. <laughs> then we moved back to Eswatini and I found like school Mecca. Both of my brothers kept getting expelled from all the schools we went to. Went to a United World College, which is just the, the coolest um, institution. It's uh, the they planted schools in places where education was segregated, which was the case for my um, school during apartheid. They put it in Eswatini when South African kids were not allowed to study with um, kids of other races. So they planted it then during apartheid. And it was a spectacular school. Like suddenly everything came together. There was good curriculum. The curriculum, we did the um, IGCSEs. And uh, so it's a British curriculum, the international version of a British curriculum, the GCSEs. Um, and the teachers had all, I don't know, gone to college. <laughs> and <laughs> Extraordinary. And 
Yes. I was still totally, totally overwhelmed by math, but I just had the sweetest, kindest teacher who really worked with me and was able to kind of get me through high school. So you went far in your academic career then. You went all the way through to an upper level degree. Yeah. So I got my bachelor's in English and journalism and then got got an MFA in fiction writing. Coming out of that background, did you ever feel caught up? Like, was there ever a point where you looked around maybe in high school or college or or graduate school where you looked around and you went, now we're all on a level playing field? That's such an interesting question. I remember always feeling sort of logistically behind. Like I remember, man, I just felt so thankful that I went to college when I did in the early, early 2000s. So I could kind of like scramble together and work and work and work and work and then pay for however many credits were coming up. Um, But it was a huge financial stress. And I remember um, trying to get financial aid because I certainly qualified for it, but you needed a notarized, you needed something notarized from your parents. My parents were in Eswatini and it was prohibitively expensive too. Mm -hmm. Well, and there weren't notary publics in Eswatini. So anyway, long story short, there was no possible way for me to get something notarized. So I remember sort of like sitting in that office for like maybe the dozenth time, like trying to find a workaround to get some financial aid and feeling like, I don't think that, I don't think that most of my peers have to worry about this. Like I remember that being one of the things. And then certainly remember, like there were just, I have huge holes in my education that's pop up. I think I was in college maybe, and I was in a band and we're having, we had like a little concert where people we were going to have like a contest to for someone to name our new band. And um, someone suggested a name with the word Calliope in it. And I obviously knew the word, but I'd never heard it spoken aloud. And I remember standing up and reading whatever the, the band name was. I can't even remember what it was aside from something Calliope and pronouncing it Calliope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And everyone kind of like correcting me. So there are definitely moments like that where there's something there because I've always been a reader. I know the context. I know what's being talked about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get something probably a little bit wrong. I don't ever recall feeling too crappy about that though. I'd have like a little moment of sort of like embarrassment and then be over it. Um, and I think that is because as much as I think I would have liked to have a little bit of a different um, experience with education growing up, I didn't. (laughs) It is what it is. And even though I did not go to school, holy moly, I saw some stuff. I am better at killing venomous snakes than the people (laughs) who went to Yeah. I know that after it floods in Mozambique, you have to be careful where you go because all of the landmines have moved. I know that there are things that I don't know that a lot of people I went to school with do, but I really am thankful for a bunch of the experiences that I had as a kid. My parents, one thing I gotta like really appreciate about my parents is from the time we were tiny, they would, any money they had, we never had much money. 
but any money that we did have or any like tickets or air miles that they could mooch off of people, they just shoved us all on a plane and off we went. They mm-hmm. took us anywhere that we could. And then in the Mkuzweni years where where funds were very, very limited, they would borrow vehicles. They would, my dad would piece together like piece of shit vehicles. <laughs> and we would just take off. We would, we would just go. They're like, oh, you want to see a baobab tree? Let's go. Do you feel like you have more grace for the parents in educated than say I would or most readers would in the sense that I find it hard to think kindly about her parents as I read this book. Mm-hmm. And that's because I read it when I had young children. And and I, I mean, I, I had the opposite childhood as you did. It was very structured, right? And I'm curious to know how you look at her way of life. Yeah, a really good question. No, absolutely not. I, but I feel familiar with a sort of parent like that, if that makes sense. My parents are very different from the Westovers. Um, They like antibiotics. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank God. (laughs) So there are a lot of things that are really different Mm -hmm. about my parents and the West of her parents. There is a particular kind of relationship with religion um, where you kind of, what you do in your day-to-day doesn't matter that much because you're kind of living for some other time and realm and you're doing it for a God who is a little kooky. I mean, I don't the Westover parents, their God is kind of bonkers. My parents, God needed some therapy for <laughs> sure. He was not okay. And I don't know. I don't feel at all um, like I want to let them off of the, the Westover parents. I mm-hmm. don't want to let them off the hook. I think they suck as parents. My parents did much, much, much better than the West of her parents, but it's, it feels familiar in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. the, the emphasis and the motivations. I don't in the slightest let them off of the hook. I don't feel angry at them if necessarily, just because I think I'm, I'm done feeling angry at that kind of thing. I've definitely spent a lot of my 20s feeling very angry. If I had read this book in my 20s, I would have really, I think, been very, very, very angry when I was going through the work of processing the kind of neglect that goes with a particular kind of, like a breed of fundamentalism, okay. um, where you only care about, you only care about God and the message that you think that you picked up from God. I have no patience for it, but- it's not that interesting to me anymore. What's interesting to me is what is Tara going to do with this? And what are her siblings going to do with this? That's very interesting to me. For me, the fundamental sadness of it was the hold that religion has over mental health and the denial of it. And that was also my experience in the church when I was younger. You know, I was told for years that if I prayed really hard, my depression would go away and I just must not be praying enough. And you know, Mm. when my depression went away, when I got professional help. (laughs) Mm. 
and started to understand how brains actually work. And it was not because I was bad at religion. It was because I have a messed up chemical system, right? Mm -hmm. And I think about all of those years and how many times I heard that, a version of that to me or to other people. Yeah. And and then you read about her dad and you think this is so clearly a mental health crisis. But religion can be twisted to control that where it's a lack of faith or it's a previous sin coming back. All of those things can be the source of it. It breaks my heart because the pain that then ripples out from that is just it's it's going to be generations before they're well of that, before they're healed of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we have a Venn diagram and here is mental illness and here is religion, like for whatever reason, in my experience, there's a really, 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 really big gap where they connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that makes sense as a kind of self-medication where you are absolved of everything wrong that you did and that you're about to do. Like there is sort of like an, a reset button every day if you want it. Um, I can see how that could be attractive, but also like really high stakes boundaries where you have no agency whatsoever. All you have to do is like really just not, not think about anything you don't want to think about and chalk it up to faith like faith being taught to have faith is being taught to not think critically about anything outside of your comfort zone and that i think is really front and center in the westover parents Mm -hmm. and as soon as tara westover starts to think critically about anything that is off topic in her childhood she's gone she is excommunicated from her family so that, I mean, that is the real, the real poison to faith and religion, this kind of faith and religion. I mean, yeah. please don't assume that I'm tossing every, everybody's relationship with faith into the same, same little box as this book um, or my parents. I don't know how you felt at the end of the book, but my feeling was she tried really hard to write a hopeful ending. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel any of that hope. I felt like she was just getting into horrible, horrible years of hard work that may or may not come to a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Um, so I didn't feel any real hope for her at the end of that. Um, I would love to. I really want her to... <laughs> To find some peace. I mean, but I do think that that kind of work takes years and years. And years. All, all that can happen is wait, wait and keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm out. I'm glad you said that because that is my one real complaint about this book is that it felt to me like it came too soon after her getting out of the life. Mm-hmm. And another memoirist I like, Glennon Doyle, um, she has written repeatedly that you have to live with it for a while and you have to think on it and and have the time to look back and think, oh, that's what it meant. Yes. And it felt to me like Tara Westover hadn't thought it through yet. I totally agree with everything you said. I would love to um, see what 
Tara Westover would do with all of this material, like pretend Mm -hmm. she didn't write this book, Mm -hmm. write it again in 15 years. And I think it would be, I mean, I, I already like it a lot as it is, but I think this book written with a lot of time and space would be really interesting and thoughtful. And some of the moments in the book that felt rushed through because I think they had to be rushed through mm-hmm. would probably have a much different tom- timbre to them. They'd feel a lot different. So tell me, what are you reading right now? I am reading um, What My Bones Know. Um, that is by Stephanie Fu. And I know Stephanie Fu from This American Life and Snap Judgment. I really like her reporting. Um, the book is spectacular. It's about um, complex, um, PTSD, um, and Stephanie's food, Stephanie Fu's diagnosis with CPTSD and her, um, journey to, um, heal from it. She has a horrific childhood, like lots of abuse. Um, what makes PTSD have the C in front of it? What makes it complex? So PTSD can occur from one or two really kind of like devastating moments or traumatic moments. Complex PTSD is the stress response to a a lifetime of horrible moments. And um, yeah. And she uh, goes really, she kind of digs into the epigenetics of trauma, which is fascinating and epigenetics are really interesting to me and I feel like she kind of explains things more clearly than most she does a really good job of talking about that and the epigenetics of trauma in some immigrant populations so yeah very good um I'm also reading this is not a pity memoir by Abby Morgan um that's the title this is not a pity memoir yeah. And it, <laughs> okay. yeah. And the title comes from context, from text, from context. It's a, a good title comes from a scene in the book. Um, the writing style is lovely. She's a screenwriter, a playwright, one or both or the other. I'm not sure. She writes for BBC for the most part. I actually don't know her work. I just picked up this book. It was recommended to me. Um, it's beautiful. Like her management of transitions is just gorgeous. Um, and I am reading Love Medicine by Luis Erdrich, who is one of my all times, all time favorites. I love Luis Erdrich. So you're back to your three books at a time then. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I am. <laughs> Looks like I am. <laughs> so now you have two, two nonfiction and one fiction going. Yes, I do. Yeah. I haven't read Louise Erdrich in a long time. And I used to read her a lot. Oh, she's so good. Um, I recently read one of her newer ones, Future Home of the Living God. Ooh, that's a good one. That's such a good title too. So, isn't that a good title? Yeah. It kind of feels like, I mean, it's written by Louise Erdrich. It feels like Louise Erdrich and Margaret Atwood had a baby though. It's really, <laughs> ooh, it's so good. I'm going to go pick her up again because- I, I don't know why. I just haven't read any of her books in so long. And I used to really be into her. Yeah. She's prolific, man. She's she really is. a real treat because everything she writes is amazing. And she busts something out every year or two. <laughs> She's like the perfect author. Yeah. Well, yeah. why don't you share with our listeners where they can find you 
online or in all the places? Yeah. So I don't like or do social media. It just doesn't work with my brain and the way that I sort of socially click. Um, I do have a blog that I just started a couple months ago and it's called, it's kind of, a, it's very cursory um, book reviews. So nothing is a deep dive. Nothing is at all rigorous. It's just kind of like little reviews about the books that I'm reading and typically about whatever runs I was doing, whatever run or runs occurred while I was listening to the book. Um, and that's called books running. Um, and that's it blogspot.com. So books running.blogspot.com. And you'll keep us posted when you finish your memoir and publish that, I hope. Yes. So that we can all go read it. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> okay. Well, it has been lovely talking to you. And I hope you'll come back anytime you have a book you want to share with me. Because this has really been fun. Yes. Thank you so much, Julie. I loved it. Bookworms, I would love to hear if you've read Educated and what you thought of it. Let me know on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. Links to everything we discussed are in the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your favorite book-loving friends and rate it on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.